It's episode 84 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program is designer and futurist Kenneth Bowles. He's the author of the book, Future Ethics, and we're going to discuss how, what we can learn from the digital mistakes of the past to inform the designs of the future. Kenneth, I've been a fan of your work for some time, and I really appreciate you being on the program. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. So, so look, I'd like to just preface our conversation a little bit by saying that, you know, with this podcast, I've always aimed for less about kind of current events and more about the principles and strategies and theories that kind of, you know, transcend whatever is in the news. But wow, we are recording on a day of, I don't know, it's just unprecedented uncertainty, right? That we've got a pandemic that's going globally and as of today, travel is banned and conferences and sporting events are canceled and companies are having everyone work from home. And I started thinking this morning, like, uh, how can we how can we talk about design methodologies in a time like this? And then I realized, like, hey, like a lot of what you talk about, Kenneth, is that design is is really the way to to work through the uncertainty and fear, especially when practiced with a strong ethical framework. So I think it's it's a very appropriate conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. You can take that too far, right? Uh, I remember reading an article recently saying that design thinking might be the answer to the coronavirus mm. uh, pandemic. <laughs> I thought that was an, an overreach. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's very clear that you know we live in uh, unprecedented, changing times in all sorts of ways, and so much of our society is going to have to be redesigned in some way or another. So we'd better get busy. Yeah. So redesigned is, I think, a, a good and appropriate word for it, at least a framing that we're all familiar with and can kind of get get our heads around and, and our hands around, you know, and, and kind of get to work. Um, so I think that's a that's a little bit inspiring. Why don't we why don't we take a step back and, and talk a little bit about sort of how you have come to this sort of uh, uh, way of thinking and, and methodology that you're sort of developing um, and a little bit about, you know, sort of your backstory. Yeah, sure. So let's see. So I've been in, call it what you want, digital product design, interaction design, yeah. you know, that, that, that UX term even, um, from just about two decades now. Um, and I spent, yeah, I spent a lot of time in various sorts of, uh, sectors. I've been in government, I've been in dot coms and startups. Uh, I was at Twitter for three years. I was design manager in the UK. So heading mm. up the UK design efforts there. Um, and it's pretty much the last maybe five years or so that my primary focus has been on responsible innovation, ethical technology. And I think sometimes people expect that there was like a particular moment when I was filled with horror and revulsion <laughs> for Silicon Valley and, you know, sort of wanted to wash my hands of the whole thing. And it, it wasn't that, uh, it certainly wasn't that simple. Yeah. Um, and although I am critical of some of the practices of the industry, I'm also still very much part of the industry. I think, um, you know, we, we have important roles to play, so I don't want to jettison all our progress. But I started thinking about, essentially, there seemed to be a gap in our practices, in our discourse, um, about responsibility and about ethics, because, you know, we have a tremendous amount of power to define the future. Uh, and with power comes, as the cliche goes, responsibility. And so we needed to, I thought, up our game on that. I was lucky enough to um, be able to sort of chase the interesting work. I, I didn't, you know, have to, I didn't have to live sort of paycheck to paycheck. Um, so I could essentially put aside some time to properly investigate this field and was just absolutely fascinated by by what I found, the depth of 
existing research and the depth of um, uh, debate uh, that you know that we should aspire to as an industry. So I think my job ever since has been to try and translate some of that for working designers, working technologists. Interesting. Yeah, the the, the concept that there there has been of perhaps mostly academic conversation about this sort of uh, what you call a gap in responsibility that hasn't translated. Uh, one, into the practice of design, and two, into the decision-making of the businesses that the designers are, are perhaps working for, yeah? Mm, absolutely. I think the practitioners don't appreciate, I suppose, that academics have been talking about this issue for decades. You know, the, the philosophy of technology as a discipline has been around since maybe the, the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Mm. There's science and technology studies, STS, are essentially sort of the critical sister, if you like, of the technological disciplines. Um, and, you know, anthropology, sociology, plus, of course, all sorts of writers and artists and you know, science fiction authors um, who've been looking at the implications of technology and technological progress, again, for decades. And we may be sort of casually familiar with some of their tropes, but we really haven't been heeding their warnings. Um until recently, I think now that's starting to change. We're realizing, oh, actually, they had something terrifically useful to um, to offer, and maybe we should pay some heed. Interesting. So, from from our perspective, kind of watching movies like Terminator and going, ah, oh, Skynet, ah ha ha, right? Um, to, to then finding ourselves in a world where uh, where the government is scanning people's foreheads as they walk down the street to see if they have a fever. Uh, right like which is which is uh uh, if not happening not far off right yeah and it's it's kind of amazing the extent to which popular science fiction has established kind of public expectations of what technology will do in future right um and that almost always tends toward dystopia because dystopia sells right dystopia is um exciting it's edgy um I know, you know, a lot of folks in the AI ethics space and the one trope that they always roll their eyes at is when, you know, a tabloid newspaper talks about robots from the future and illustrates it with a picture of the Terminator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And it, you know, brings these mental models to bear that aren't necessarily helpful. Nevertheless, I mean, it it shows the power of fiction to cut through um, people's imaginations and right to, to establish visions of what might be. And so this is where I think designers should get involved in that process as well and use that power for themselves. Interesting. Yes. Uh, one of the things I think we are particularly adept at is the, the visualization or the, or the creation of prototypes and artifacts for potential futures, right? Like that's essentially yeah. the job, right? There's, uh, or at least the first phase of the job. Uh, and I, it sounds like what you're advocating is like, let's take those various scenarios uh, and find the ones that fit into a, uh, a more equitable more ethical framework uh, for for the future. Right, absolutely. So I I try to describe myself essentially as, as you know, my company is an ethical design and futures studio now. Um, and what I mean by that is, is precisely that. How do we have a conversation about what the future looks like and the role of technology within the future? And then how do we discuss and mitigate the ethical risks uh, within that? Um, I think collectively, we're not very good at, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking the general public here, we're not very good at talking about the future or thinking about the future in a structured way, because it's essentially a thought experiment, right? We're asking people to sort of hallucinate about what the future might look like. Mm. 
and then to talk about, well, who does well, who does poorly in that scenario. And it's certainly the case that we can help offer some structure and some meaning to those conversations by prototyping that future, by making it tangible and visible um, for people to actually then have proper conversations around, you know, creating these social objects that prompt the critical conversations, that prompt the, oh, wait, but this means dot, 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 those kind of realizations. Um, And I think that's where designers have a superpower over a lot of other disciplines that talk about the future. Um, And obviously this gets us into the realm of design fiction, speculative design, which uh, as you'll be particularly aware, has a very strong history in London. Mm. Um, And so I'm very interested in using those techniques to draw out conversations about what is, you know, as, as you say, a fair and an ethical future. So there's a really interesting intersection there. There is. It sounds, um, it sounds very aligned, uh, and that's great. Mm. Um, one of the things you said a little bit earlier was the, the sort of the, the power of designers to define the future. Um, well, that's an interesting phrase uh, when you use power. Uh, mm. And that has been sort of a theme that, that we've kind of uh, touched on over the course of the episodes of this podcast. The, the power that designers have, the distribution, the, the inequity in that power, uh, the power that designers sometimes don't have in in uh, in an organization towards change. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Like what was your experience, for example, in, in design management at Twitter, when, for example, you could get a piece of work kind of handed down and say, go explore this, um, and the ability to say, like, maybe we shouldn't do this, right? I think a lot of designers have found themselves mm-hmm. in that position and found it very, very difficult. <clears throat> it is difficult. Um, my experience is... Obviously, you know, going back a few years now, so certain things I look back and say, had I known then what I know now, had I Mm. had a better moral framework for evaluating some of those decisions, had I had better techniques for pushing back against some of those, then maybe I'd have done a better job. I don't think I failed or anything like that. But, um, you know, you always question, could I have done better? Sure. Um, I think inside companies, designers understandably might feel that they've not got as much power as they would like. Um, or they might feel that they've lost power actually in the last few years. I think that product management has become a bit of a juggernaut to the extent that in many companies, designers are being, I'll just say undermined slightly Mm. by the power that product has to overrule their decisions and to seize some of that power. Nevertheless, collectively as an industry, we are enormously powerful. Um, more than almost any other sector, we we get a stake in the future in defining what that future is like. So we should never, although we may have days where we think we can't, you know, really have much impact on the way things are, you know, the world is going. Right. Um, look at the wider trajectory of the in, the industry. We absolutely get to define social norms around privacy, around how we interact with technology, and then by extension, how we interact with each other in years to come. And when it comes to actual, yeah, you know, power. Uh, and decision making in inside companies, yes, that is that is still uh, tricky. Still, something designers, you know, we've talked for so long about having the seat at the table, and to an sure. extent, we've got that. Yep. But we are still beholden to all of the power structures and existing um, constraints, I suppose, that come with having a seat at the table. You know, the the, the table is essentially just a you know metaphor for being able to contribute to business as usual. 
um, in my view. And given some of the crises we see around us, I'm not interested in business as usual anymore. So I my my glib joke is I'm probably more interested in flipping the table than having a seat at it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Revolution, not evolution. <laughs> right. There you go. Right. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's good. I, I have. I mean, it, it maps a lot to the, the my own career over the years uh, and my realization sort of in the, in the midpoint of my career that that my ability to articulate kind of visually the desires of those in power was an, an, an incredibly valuable strategy, right? The, uh, to be able to sit with the, the people who want to take the business in this direction and, and to, to literally draw what they're talking about and say, you mean like this and to have them say yes or no. And generally yes, because when you, when you're the one with the pen, right, it, uh, uh, it does turn it into a, a much different conversation. So, mm. um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've just been really fascinated with the idea of like how to influence power, how to collect it, how to distribute it and, and things like that. Um, there is the whole other part of this too, where you say we have an unprecedented ability to affect the future by being in technology. Uh, but for some definition of we and who is, who is actually sitting around that table with the, you know, the variety of groups that have never had access in the past. So that's also something, a big area of, of work that needs to happen. Oh yes, for sure. And you know, tech firms, it's, it's, it's well-documented, of course, tech firms failings on diversity. Um, it's, you know, been exacerbated by things like even just candidate referral systems where, you know, you get a bonus for referring your friends. Well, guess who your friends are going to be? They're the the people who also went to Harvard or whatever it might be. So that's not a, um, representative sample of the wider user base and universe. Um, we have also, I think, not been collectively very good at decentering our perspectives, um, away from you know, Silicon Valley, from Western Europe. So I'm particularly interested in how do we do that? How do we start to uh, design for, not just design for a, you know, a global user base, but also understand the ethical values and the cultures that are not being represented in these discussions. You know, I mean, through my research, I spent several years, uh, well, a good couple of years, researching philosophy and ethics and so on for, for, for my writing and for my uh, ongoing work. It's only fairly recently, maybe the last year that I've started to realize, you know, I missed a trick in that there is a far wider worldview, particularly in uh, Asia, particularly in China, um, around, you know, philosophy, around culture, around society, around government, um, that I don't fully understand. And I don't think we as a community understand. So I'm trying to deepen my knowledge of those as well. Um, we still have a heck of a long way to go on uh, that particular road. I mean, it's pretty fundamental stuff too. Like the notion of individual privacy is very different in different parts of the world. Yes. And I'm glad to hear you say different because there are some who would say that the notion of privacy does not exist in other parts of the world. And that's not the case. Um, there's, there's almost a tendency to treat again, particularly China as a monolithic entity in the West. We have a sort of preferred narrative uh, about China and say, well, you know, across these 1.3 billion people, none of them exhibit this certain tendency. It's like, it's not, that's, that's not true. It's a, it's a large and complex country. Mm. Um, yes, it's more that it's different and we are not exposed to what that difference is, or we let it be overridden by that monolithic, uh, narrative, if you like. 
Right. Uh, while we still export our products there and vice versa. Yeah. So that well, of course. That, well, yeah, but that, that definitely, that kind of illustrates the tension and the friction between different views of the world and, uh, and of ourselves hmm. and the products that we make. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me take a little break. Uh, we'll be right back. I have some more questions for you. So today's episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. You know, today's internet users expect a fast web experience. No matter how good your content or how effective your marketing, the most likely bounce if your website is loading too slowly. So with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how your website performance issues affect your visitors' experience. Uh, that way you can take action before your business is impacted. How your visitors experience your website differs depending on their browser, their device, the platform that they use. So you want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website. You can make informed optimizations that way and deliver a great performance to those who matter the most. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. And that means you can monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of your historic data or breaking the bank in the process. So get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial, and you don't even need a credit card. Then when you sign up, just use the code presentable at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your invoice. That's pingdom.com slash RelayFM. And thanks to our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. Uh, all right, so we have uh, we've talked about things like responsibility and innovation, power, and, and things like that. Uh, I'm wondering, can, can we bring it down to uh, what we do, not not uh, the the more theoretical, but the like the techniques, uh, the methodologies that might help us try to reframe the way that we make products. We've we've talked about some of the mistakes we made in the past of not having a broad enough view. Uh, potentially that the impact of the technology we're creating. So, so literally, what do we do about it? I think there are essentially two axes that we need to uh, start working along. One is to think about the actors in our system, essentially who are we designing for, and to reconsider that. And the second is to reconsider the timescales that we're designing uh, within. And to, to step to the first then, you know, throughout my career, what, 20 years in, I've been trained to focus with laser-like precision on the user. Um, but that comes with its own problems, right? Because you load potentially harms, externalities, as we might call them, onto people who aren't users. Like Airbnb is the classic example. It's brilliant for users and it's terrible for neighborhoods. It's terrible for mm. cities. Um, under a pure user-centered point of view, Airbnb is a triumph. It's a great product. But is it good for society? No, I'm pretty sure it's not. So we need to get more comfortable with designing for a broader set of stakeholders. So there are some techniques I use, you know, something called the actor triangle to help tease out, well, who might these hidden stakeholders be? And then how can we try to in include them or at least include their perspectives in the design process nice and early so that we don't just throw out a product that has all these ethical harms and then think, well, We'll, we'll get around to fixing those later. Hmm. So that brings me then to that second axis of time that we tend to focus, you know, we talk about time and design mostly, like interaction design, the, the moment of interaction or a system responding to input. We need to be better at having conversations about the unintended consequences of our work in months, years, decades, 
to come. And that's tricky under, particularly under uh, lean ideologies, which tell us Mm. that, well, we live in a period of such change that you can't possibly predict. So the best way is you build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn. Now, the problem with that is you build and you then create the thing that pushes this ethical harm into the world. And you say, oh, okay, we'll fix that in version two or sprint two or whatever whatever we might do. Now, that's fine if what you've broken is a photo interface, but it's not fine if what you've broken is democracy. So hmm. there has to be, we've got to find a way to make proper space to look at that wider set of actors, but then to properly talk about the consequences, the impacts that our decisions might have on those people or groups and to mitigate them before they happen. So that's a design process. That's something that needs to happen upstream, not as a checklist at the end. That needs to be essentially ethics as an ethos rather than just a you know a, a checklist or something we fix in the next iteration. You mentioned the actor triangle. Is did I, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is something I've adapted from. Um, a toolkit called Actionable Futures, that's by Nordcap, who are a Finnish uh, design firm. Um, essentially, it's a, it's a simple triangle and it has three uh, three corners on it, as I suppose most triangles do. Um, and so I use that as a tool to help uh, essentially brainstorm who might be hidden stakeholders. So one of those corners is the catalysts. So these are the people who are creating or inspiring or initiating that technological change, that the inventors or the hackers or whatever it might be. Um, then at the top, there's the decision makers. These tend to be the people who commercialize, who regulate, who set the norms for that, uh, industry or for that innovation as it, as it progresses. And then on the bottom right, um, we have the people essentially who are affected by the system. So they may be consumers, they may be workers, they may be unions, they may be children, you know, whatever it might be, they might be animals. Um, and so I use that as a device essentially guiding teams through and say, okay, five minutes on this corner, five minutes on this corner, five minutes on this corner, and then start moving things around. Because of course, you may find that um, governments would regulate uh, an innovation, but they might also be affected by it as well. So they might sit somewhere between the two. So it's simply a matter of using that as a technique to get a bunch of post-its onto that sheet so that we can start prioritizing and say, okay, well, we wouldn't have considered, say, the impact on... um, yeah, let's say let's say unions for the sake of argument. What might that impact be? Is that a positive or a negative impact that we could have on them? And how do we prioritize our responsibilities toward them compared to our responsibilities to our users, to our um, you know, to our funders, to you know, mm. to a wider set of, of people. So it's just about getting those people in the discussion, getting them up on the walls so that we can have meaningful conversations and it's not just the user, the user, the user all the time. Or the shareholder, the shareholder. Well, or yes, exactly. Or, you know, oh, that's our, a, our I mean, bonuses, that's, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, that's what comes to mind, saying like, wait, 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 there's all this opportunity and you want to do what? Yeah. Like, that's the conversation, really. Exactly. Right? And of course, you know, that there is still going to be a role for profit. We're not saying this is not a fundamentally anti-capitalist um, adventure, this. We are, we are simply saying that um, we want to innovate responsibly, if we want to make profit, we need to do that responsibly because that's the only way that profit is sustainable is responsibly um, you know, treating our wider set of stakeholders, particularly in you know, this, all the cliches we can throw about this interconnected world um, and particularly a world facing climate crisis. There is no profit um, in 
unsustainable approaches, or there certainly won't be for long. So part of me, all of me agrees with you. Uh, Yeah, part of me struggles with uh, the fact that this feels like having a conversation with the person who is trying to to get this new combustion engine to replace having horses all over the city uh, and trying to say, can we imagine the suburbs and can we imagine the change in climate, uh, you know, 150 years out? It, it in, in one way, it feels like, yes, of course, we understand all this now and we have to take this into consideration. And in another way, I was, I was uh, consulting with Twitter in its first year hmm. that was around. And we met the, you know, the change, like that it would affect democracy. Hmm. was was it was not just not on the table it it just you know it was uh not something that i i think anybody could have envisioned so hmm. uh i don't know i'm just kind of working through this and trying to feel like yeah yes i agree with you and oh my god it feels so daunting <laughs> yeah, i mean I, I i totally hear you and it's it's fair to say that yeah twitter shouldn't necessarily be blamed for the decisions they made in year one um leading to trump for example or leading mm. to you know some of the abuses of power that um that well even he or you know other other folks um have shown on the, on the platform but this isn't a distinct discrete process right this is something I, what i'm trying to get across is the idea that this becomes part of the way we work as designers throughout our careers so it might be that you mm. could you could rightly say that twitter failed on abuse in year one Right, the problems on abuse were rooted right at the start. They were very slow to add a block function. They didn't listen to women, mostly on their platform, who mm. were being abused, um, and they you know, they left it far too late. And then that set essentially a cultural DNA where abuse was not treated with the gravity that it required, and that has carried on to this day. Um, but you're right to say that they. It's unfair to say they should have anticipated the potential undermining of democracy that something like Twitter offers in. 15 years time however um once those sort of harms started to become apparent then they should have done better as they emerged so you know facebook for example certainly couldn't have anticipated fake news and you know uh foreign psyops essentially or uh, you know information ops um through the platform when it was the facebook in 2006 or whatever it was um, however, <laughs> you know, once they started to grow to a global scale, those risks were not uh, wildly difficult to anticipate as the product evolves. And so it's, it's about being alert to how your impact on wider society is changing as your product scales and changes. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that framing. Um, <clears throat> there's also, I think, uh, as, as we see shifts in societal norms, like, for example, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think the bulk of uh, people were too terribly concerned with their data in the quote unquote cloud, right? Mm. Like, um, yeah, you know, I sign in, I give them some information, it makes the product better and stuff like that. Then we had a series of data breaches. Then we mm-hmm. had uh, everything that happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and all of that sort of stuff. And everyone's like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you know, I'm really concerned about this. That requires a change for Facebook and Google right? Like our fundamental business model is the collection of this data. Mm-hmm. But uh, another way of framing that is, is Apple, for lack of a better word, capitalizing on that and saying, we've never needed your data. We sell silicon and glass, right? So, so saying like, we will take this position of a more ethical approach to the digital universe 
uh, whether you believe them or not, but that, that they would make that, that changing political or, uh, cultural norm into the fundamental of their strategy as a way of, of, of differentiating and competing. Yeah. And we're seeing this increasingly that ethics can be used as a differentiator. Now it can also be weaponized in somewhat unpleasant ways, I think. But when you look at Apple, yeah, they've clearly said on privacy, this is something that we can essentially put one over on, you know, your Facebooks and your Googles right. and say, well, this has always been the case for us. Your data is never shared, cannot be accessed by someone else. We, you know, we have end-to-end encryption and you know, all this sort of all this sort of stuff. Um, now, Ben Thompson, the analyst, has um, uh, had his own take on this, which I kind of agree with. It's all very convenient for Apple because it happens to offer them a strategic bonus to do so, right? It happens to mean they can sell more products um, because of that stance. So you could question uh, whether that's, you know, legitimate sort of ethical behavior or whether it's they just see a niche they can exploit in terms of um you know communications and pr advantage mm. nevertheless you know i know some folks at apple and um you know as i'm sure you do and you know they genuinely do want to do the right thing by their users on privacy but then frankly these days so do google and actually so do a lot of folks at facebook um they're just essentially having to compete from a very different uh, territory and you know that means their progress is is different. So yeah, I mean ethics is it has the potential to allow you to yeah to differentiate to say well we're not like the others. I'm just I think those claims need need to be met with the occasional bit of skepticism. Of course, um, you know that it's not just ethics washing or convenience. Um, you know PR is this actually meaningful difference here? And that's uh, that's what I you know spend a lot of my time trying to look at these days. Oh, I think there's also, I mean, the case you made about the, the notion of privacy in China and, and China being a, a, a tremendously large and diverse place. We're also talking about trillion-dollar companies here that yeah. probably have a tremendous set of ethical perspectives from the, the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people that work for them. So, uh, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but no, I, the skepticism is, I think, appropriate uh, mm. at that scale. Mm. I think that's actually, that brings up something that's, at the heart of a lot of ethical conversations is how do you account for that plurality, right? You know, you've got a, a workforce of, let's say 50,000, for example, not everyone will agree, right? Uh, on these issues, which don't have precedent, a lot of them. So how do you have a meaningful ethical discussion that allows for diverse viewpoints to be heard, um, but then also allows you to take a decision? Because clearly you're not going to be able to keep everyone happy. I mean, look at what happened with Google right. and the James Damore fiasco, where he essentially wrote this <laughs> yeah. um, you know, manifesto that more or less claimed that diversity was a sham. Um, and there was you know, revulsion among a very large proportion of the Google workforce, but also applause from a small uh, right. proportion of it as well. And so this is, that's the forefront of a lot of ethical challenges for companies as they grow, is how do you move beyond this kind of gut feel. Well, I think it's this. Well, well, I think it's this. And usually the highest paid person wins to having a proper way to think through those ethical challenges. That's the kind of work I, I like to get involved in these days. Ah, interesting. I want to, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. We're mm. going to take one more break. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. These are the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. It's so easy to use. You can get access to far more parts on your laptop and make your nice MacBook, Chromebook, or other 
laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play with no drivers, so you can enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and Display Link video connectors, plus USB 3, USB C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things uh, in high volume manufacturing and all sorts of other IT products as well. Plus, they have rigorous test cycles and quality control. That means all their products are tested above industry standards. So if you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive any one of their docking stations today. Visit kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out uh, the Kensington docking stations. That's kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So uh, what I hear you saying is that while we can't necessarily anticipate the outcomes from very new technology, we can certainly kind of develop the muscle for adaptation when they come up. Uh, and how do we do that at, at scale, uh, especially considering the diversity of the, the, the voices within companies and, that are developing this technology? Yeah, I, I, think that's, um, I think that's a fair summary. And for me, uh, I think we need to be leaning on the critique process a lot for mm. this. Crit is where we already talk about the impacts of decisions, right? You know, you get a bunch of designers, maybe even throw a product manager or so in the room if you're, if you're feeling brave. Um, and you're saying, okay, well, if we do this, what is the result? You know, what are we hoping for in terms of product success or OKRs or whatever they might be? It's relatively simple to, as you say, to build that muscle of just broadening the scope of those questions saying, okay, if we do this, what negative consequences could it have on who, you know, on the user, on a wider set of people that we've hopefully discussed previously. And although we, as you point out, we certainly won't be able to anticipate all uh, all the potential unintended consequences, we'll certainly be able to anticipate some of them. I think it's important not to conflate unintended with unforeseeable. There are plenty that we should be able to see if we train ourselves to yeah. be wise to those opportunities or to those problems, then we can mitigate those. Now, we'll never get all of them. There's even a law of unintended consequences that says as much, says you can never, you know, there will always be some you don't get, essentially. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. You know, we are frankly coming from a bit of a standing start where even just anticipating 50%, 70% of the potential harms of our work, that's a great start. Let's work from there. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, it, it brings back, this is a tiny sort of example of this, but from my own experience when we were developing Typekit and, uh, you know, a couple of years in, uh, somebody had what I thought was a very compelling idea of, of allowing uh, the users of the system to post uh, font combinations and packs and sort of like, here's a great set of fonts, uh, that I use and it's great for poster design. And this is a great one for, uh, for e-commerce websites or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Let, let our users sort of do that and share that out as a way of, uh, of, of showing how the library was more functional. And I remember we have had a very simple conversation of like, oh, that's user generated content. And that's, that requires a whole level of essentially curation uh, and kind of community guidelines and stuff like that. And we don't have the resources to make sure that that feature is not abused. Mm -hmm. And that, that felt like that one tiny step. And I, and I realized that because I had been very sort of uh, involved and close with the, uh, the creators of Flickr. 
you know, five or six yes. years earlier and realizing like they thought they were making a little weight of sharing photos, but in, in fact, they were developing a huge set of community guidelines and abuse protocols and every, you know, people that sit around and look at photos all day long to make sure there's no pornography. And like, I was like, Oh, as soon as you allow user generated content, your, your product changes. And so in my mind, that was a category. Let's just not, let's just not do that that because I don't want to anticipate all the work we'll have to do to, <laughs> to support it. Right. I didn't think there was a return on that investment, frankly. Yeah. Um, but that's the, I think that's what you're, you're getting at a little bit here is like, okay, in every feature that we develop, can we think about these consequences and can we get better at the process over time? Absolutely. And it doesn't need to be a very heavy process, right? We don't need to have, you know, a risk register and then, you know, compliance officer going through each of those. I mean, in a large company, sometimes, you know, heavily regulated industries, you do have that kind of thing. But sure. for us, for, you know, for small teams, for startups, for for even, you know, decent sized .coms, for example, it's just training ourselves just to have those discussions. And the discussion could just be a little bit in crit. It could be, you know, a Slack message saying, oh, hey, did we consider X? Yeah. Um, but it's training ourselves to do that just as a natural part of the design process. And for me, that's about designers recognizing their shared responsibility here. They have a responsibility, yes, to the business and to their shareholders to do what's right for the company. We also have a responsibility to wider society, to the environment, to the future of our planet, to future generations, essentially not to screw them over. Um, and sometimes those are going to come into conflict, quite bluntly. Um, and so that's where those, if you like, the moments of moral truth really come through. Those are the most critical decisions that the designers will, will have to face. Who do you prioritize in that situation? But a lot of the time you can still achieve happiness and success for both of those cohorts. And it's just training ourselves to think in those two directions at once. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple, there are a couple of levels there for sure. I have taken a lot of inspiration from development teams who uh, you know, the, the engineering focus of creating products where literally everybody on the team as they're develop as they're making the thing are thinking what could go wrong now, not mm. in an ethical sense, but in a very sort of technical sense, like can, can the work that I'm doing right now, make the product stop to function, stop functioning. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so everybody has this perspective and, and so much of the work of DevOps over the past 10 years has been around distributing this idea of like security and performance and all of the different things that we require in a robust system be the responsibility of everybody on the team. Um, and that's a very sort of, you know, nuts and bolts way of thinking. But I wonder uh, if that is a trend that we can start to foresee in everybody on the product side of the equation. I think so. And I think particularly security, there is a good analogy here. Like in security yeah. teams, you will have the concept of the red team, right? Who who are essentially trying to challenge the decisions who might, yeah. um, you know, say, well, this would expose a particular attack vector. Um, and they might even be doing a bit of ethical hacking to try to expose those flaws in the solution that's being proposed. That's exactly the kind of mentality that we should be bringing to product development and to design. Um, yeah. Eric Meyer and Sarah Wachtabecha, they wrote this book, yeah. um, Design for Real Life. And yep. in that, they talk about the idea of a designated dissenter, um, which is essentially that. It's someone on the red team. It's someone wearing you know, the black hat in Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats um, sense essentially who's there to robustly challenge constructively um, uh, 
critique, I suppose, the decision that the team is making. Well, what if I don't want to provide that information? Or, um, you know, what if I'm going through a messy divorce and you're asking me all sorts of things about my marital status and how dare you? And, you know, essentially constructive antagonism. Now, that's a role you want to rotate, right? You don't want one person to be that antagonist all the time because we know what happens to people like that. Uh, I know a couple of people that would love that job. <laughs> the problem is they don't end up in that job for long because the company right, finds no. a way to root around and eventually get exactly. rid of that person. So you need to train the whole team to take that perspective and maybe rotate yeah. it and force it upon people every now and then. But that's a healthy thing to build, yeah, you know, to to return to a sort of a sort of unfortunate, unfortunately current idea to build a sort of immunity and inoculation against that sort of ethical harm um, by helping everyone to be able to think in that way. So I think the way that the DevOps world and uh, for security and privacy and things like that, I think the way that they were able to essentially amass power around that was to make it an economic conversation. Like I, it's, it's not that difficult to turn minutes of downtime into dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I think I think that's half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that then we don't look competent, and it has an impact on our brand. Mm-hmm. Um, to be you know to be super pragmatic, this is how you say like I need more resources to to do this because it will affect the bottom line in in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I think that's the 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 direction that I'm seeing from you know sort of the the walkouts of Google and and things like this like the employees demanding that and saying like look this is going to impact the bottom line um, if not just from an ethical perspective but from a uh, frankly from a business perspective. So I just wonder about framing it that way. Uh, yes, that's um there is certainly a necessity to be able to make business case arguments for ethics. Um, there are really only three business cases in the world, right? You increase revenue, you decrease decrease cost, or you decrease risk, and you can make an ethical case for any of those. I won't I won't sort of go into the the details mm. here, but um, you know, my writing, for example, talks about those. Um, you can certainly point to employee. Um, satisfaction and retention as an important lever for mm-hmm. ethics. You know, if you have an unhappy workforce who don't like the direction of the company, guess what? They're going to leave. And right now, you know, the workforce has a lot of power. We are expensive. We're hard to hire. Um, and of course, you know, we lift our hands off the keyboards, literally nothing gets built. And that's, you know, yeah. some teams are actually even moving in that kind of direction of walkouts and even wildcat strikes and things like that. Yep. Um, you can also make a claim about, uh, attracting the right candidates. There are rumors, for example, that Facebook's acceptance rate has gone through the floor um, because of the you know, believed toxicity of their brand among some of those um, you know, graduates particularly. Um, uh-huh. So that's certainly going to make things hard for them to compete in the future. However, this all comes with a bit of a caveat that the business case, we do need to be able to make that for sure. But I try to urge people to say that that shouldn't be the only case that you offer. I think we also need to be able to make emotional and logical and rhetorical cases for why doing the right thing is the right thing to do. Because if we fail to do that, if we lean just on the business case, then what what we're doing, whether we realize it or not, is we are saying that ethics must always be subservient to the profit imperative. And a lot of the time, that's what causes ethical mistakes right is there's a lot of money to be gained from doing something and that you know we decide that outweighs the moral risk or the you know the harms that we might be pushing onto other people and so 
we might win that particular war. We might say, well, you think you can earn $200,000 from doing this. I think we can save 300000 by not doing it. But then next time someone's going to come along with a higher figure and you have no means to combat that, right? So I think I still, you know, I have the luxury. I'm an independent consultant, so I can still make these, you know, appeals to uh, to people's better natures and so on. But I think it's important that we don't lose sight of that, that we are still humans within a wider system. And yes, of course, we have to keep our companies profitable and running, but it's still critical we talk about that responsibility we have to wider society to future generations and sometimes that will mean taking decisions that um you know cost us money that will mean we don't profit from a particular decision that we could have uh you know chosen um but there's a greater good there's a greater reason why that will be a harmful thing to do mm. late stage capitalism is so interesting that's great. It, is. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Uh, Kenneth, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, I'm sure people are just uh, would love to absorb more of this. Where can, where can we find out some more? Well, so the nice thing about having an unusual name is you are very easy to find. So I'm at Kenneth.com. That's C-E-N-N-Y-D-D.com. My Twitter handle is Kenneth, again, C-E-N-N-Y-D-D. Um, and I suppose really for, if you want, uh, if you want to read about this stuff in detail, then my book, Future Ethics, uh, mm. which you can find at future-ethics.com. That's probably a great place uh, Great place to start. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today, Ken- Kenneth. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. Cheers. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.